0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. So for those of you who have been following this show for a while, you've watched my fascination with water and its role in every ecosystem grow a lot over the years. By now, between my professional experience, the courses that I've taken, and the research that I've done, I feel pretty competent in working with land in a practical way to restore its cycles and its functionalities uh, on a landscape. Now, where my understanding is still lacking is in the cutting-edge science of the way that plants use and interact with water. And I'm no research scientist, and I don't hold any degrees in biology or ecology, but I'm fascinated to go deeper into the micro-workings of water at cellular levels in order to understand how we can better manage the plants and the other living beings in order to co-create the highest potential of ecosystem function on the land that we interact with. So with that very small and achievable goal in mind, I reached out to my friend and one of my favorite guests on this show to help me to understand the deeper biological and physical workings of water within plants. So Harriet Mella is an independent research scientist from Austria known for her work uncovering the unexplained phenomena of plant growth and development, and she's informed by her background in microbiology, mycology, and biochemistry. Harriet has a unique capacity to describe little-known connections between emerging biological research and agriculture. And her objective is to use the scientific background that we all have to introduce agricultural methods that are more resilient and also low input for the, the farmer's benefit. In this conversation, we're going to explore the observations that it has had in her garden that prompted her to begin looking deeper into why some plants wilt and struggle in hot and dry conditions while others are able to continue growing and even thrive. She introduces me to some of the lesser-known capabilities of plants to cycle water internally and to overcome drought conditions. We also talk about the indications that anyone can observe in plants that demonstrate their health and their resilience to drought conditions, as well as some of the practical management changes in the soil that can promote better water handling in crops. Now, there's also a lot of innovation that has been happening lately in the field of foliar feeding due to the potential of reverse transpiration through leaves and stems. But Harriet also has some important criteria for growers to consider in order to ensure that their foliar applications are effective and not causing unintended damage. But honestly, all of this intro doesn't do justice to the amount of information in this episode, and so that's why we keep things going for almost an hour and 15 minutes. So get your notebooks ready for this one. And instead of trying to summarize anything else here, I'm just going to hand things over now to Harriet Mella. Hey, Harriet, welcome back. It's so good to connect with you again. It's been a few months now since I saw you in person when you came out to the last climate farming conference in Germany. And I remember being really excited to talk to you back then because you were just about to give a course on water management and the physiology of plants and how they manage water to the group at BESH, the the farmers organization that that helped to host that conference. And I haven't had a chance to follow up with you since then, but I was wondering if you could give me an overview about the course that you developed and some of the things that it covers.
1: With pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, The thing is, I'm not at the point where I can say how to adapt the water management in depth this is something that needs to be rethought and redeveloped okay what i can cover is the side or a change in the narrative how the plants handles water so that we can take care of these other aspects and change our water management in agriculture okay so the usual narrative is that the plant just takes up the water through the root. And this is driven by tension and cohesion in the vasculature of the plant. And the motor of this in the end is the transpiration. So only a plant that transpires is a plant that takes up water. And obviously if something goes wrong and the plant collapses and wilts, what we need to do is irrigate. Yeah. yeah, That's the logic behind it.
0: Sure. And And it makes it sound like it's a simplistic little mechanism that is osmotically drawing up water through the root system. And the low pressure from the transpiration of the leaves is kind of the the suction method that does that. And and it's that simple, right?
1: Exactly. And nutrients are in solution and they are taken up with this water flow, with this bulk water flow. And so we need actually the plants to transpire well. So we get all the nutrients into the
0: plant, obviously. Yeah. Okay. So what is wrong with that? (laughs) There is
1: much more to it. (laughs) Yeah. So the first idea that there may be some twists to these narratives came up when I saw just pretty much side-to-side plants in the same climate, in the same summer drought that were completely water stable and some that were wilting every day and even despite irrigation collapsing every day. And this was a moment where I thought, hang on, what's happening here? Mm -hmm. Because if transpiration drives the whole thing and the soil is the same, And the plans are the same, then we should see identical results and this one was not the case simply. So this was how I started to to dig into that and. What I see is in, in. Literature is the tendency to perpetuate itself. So the other research and the other evidence is there. But it's hidden and it's hidden behind a curtain of certain search strings. And if you do not know these strings, how these people named the phenomena that they were up to, you'd simply don't find it. Mm. And this is why I would like just to throw all these things now out into the audience and just spark a new thinking about how creative plants can handle water and how we can adapt our methods. Mm -hmm. So the one thing, the first thing that I want to really subdivide is the nutrition transport. Of course, this bulk water flow, dragging nutrients with it into the plant exists. No question, no doubt about it. We have nitrate in the soil, it's dissolved in the water and it gets into the plant. And this is a signal, by the way, for the plant to open the stomata and to really transpire, which will pull up the nitrate into the leaf. But this is not the only way. And the plant can close the stomata and cycle the water inside and still take up nutrients.
0: Wow. So it starts to create its own closed loop system out of necessity or, or some sort of biological uh, indicator that, that tells it to kind of shut down or close the system and keep it internal? Is that what That's I say That's the thing.
1: That was the original idea that I had when I set out that I said, hang on, you know, are we looking at a system that is just one way string from root out of the stomata in the end? Or are we looking at the possibility that the plant can, in certain conditions, just recycle the water up and down and have a closed circulation kind of thing? So the proportion that has been shown to be recycled from xylem through phloem back to the root has been shown to be around 40% at night. At night, the stomata are closed, more or less and a pretty high proportion of the sap goes down back to the root and probably there is occasions where this percentage can be higher in the field but i have not seen a study in the field what has been shown in science is that the nutrient uptake is not dependent only on transpiration but in these conditions where transpiration is reduced, nutrient uptake can still happen. And I do not deny at all that this transpiration flow happens. So please, this is, it happens and there is certain conditions where it's very strong and the plant loses enormous amounts of water, but it doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. There is an additional, possibility for water cycling, it goes up through the xylem and it goes down through the phloem again. And if you continue thinking along that road, you can have exudation and then taking it in again. So basically, we have the phenomenon, which is, of course, not developed equally well in, in certain crops and, for example, desert plants. But plants that are adapted to arid climates, they can do something that's called hydraulic redistribution. That means they take up water from very deep tap roots, where it's scarcity of nutrients. And then they pump it up, they exude it through the root, they pick up nutrients, and then it goes back right into the plant.
0: They exude it at the roots at a different strata in the soil, at the the higher level? Exactly,
1: in the top strata. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just that. So that means that if we have an agriculture, the possibility for the plant to go down deep, we have just currently the idea that we need to broadcast and evenly distribute all nutrients throughout the whole bulk of the soil. Just that, knowing that there is the possibility that the plant serves itself with water, picks up the nutrients, and then sends them into the shoot. It's a different story than fertigation, for example.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, this is brilliant. How did you start to observe this other possibility of cycling water within plants?
1: Um, I started to search because I see a phenomenon in these water stable plants that is kind of repetitive. I see one main route coming out from the crown, going towards the north. And this route is pretty much parallel to the surface. In my conditions here, very often like 10 centimeters below the surface, and it runs there straight like a cable towards the north.
0: And did we fully so grow? This is in the the tomato plant that you were talking about earlier.
1: No, this is in. I have seen it in lettuce, even. Okay. I have seen it in pumpkins. I have seen it in cucurbits in general. I have seen it in tomatoes. I have seen it. Kind of, it's it's repeating. I have seen it in. In trees too. Okay. Obviously I do not drip out trees all the time, you know, but when I had to uproot small trees, I see that this orientation of one of the main roots running towards the north parallel to the surface is pretty common motive here. I do wow. not know uh, about other conditions, but I see it here. And then I see like several other roots going down from the ground, just really down. And I'm still trying to find out exactly how this works, who is just for water, who's for nutrients, but this is something that's really repeating and repeating and repeating again. But I see that once the soil start to reach a certain stage, as long as the soil is really condensed and, and, and you know, compacted, you do not see this differentiation. And this plasticity in root architecture, that was something that really kind of puzzled me. And I know one report of um, old biodynamics that said that corn even starts to differentiate a root system if the soil passes a threshold where you have feeder roots that just pick up nutrients and these water pulling roots that go down. And when you see an ordinary um, conventional corn field, <laughs> I mean corn has not much of root system at all in there, and it makes all these brace roots, <laughs> you, you don't see anything of that. Yeah. So obviously this was because I saw these water stable plants and I was curious about how they're doing. You yeah. know, what what's happening? What's the internal changes? What's the architectural changes? What's going on?
0: Right. And so you were saying, too, that you noticed a difference from one plant to another of the same species within your own garden that caused you to think about this. Have you started to find what the, the mechanisms or the triggers are that would start a plant to cycle its own water rather than search for it and transpire it?
1: I'm still not sure if this is, this is exactly related one to one. So what I have seen is that if there is a lot of decomposing material and a lot of crude salt nutrients, or the soil is very dense, you see the plants collapse. And once you have an open friable soil, they don't usually, (laughs) hopefully. But what really surprised me was that in the condition where you have a raised bed and where you have another setting, I mean, this is something I would not like to dive into now. With my culture, for example, you see water stability, while in an ordinary raised bed, you don't see it. So there seem to be some conditions to come together to produce this phenomenon, that it works or that it don't work. And this was when I said, okay, what can I find in literature um, to give me a clue how to to change the the setting or how to investigate it in the setting.
0: Wow, okay, so with this information, how does this start to play out into management practices? I know you don't make recommendations, at least not at this stage, but. In, in thinking that plants have a mechanism to start to manage their own water in a different way, and that this, at least so far, looks like it's a pretty broad um, uh, mechanism that, that many types of plants have. It's not reduced to, to just uh, a certain classification at the moment. How can we start to manage our gardens, our, our fields differently, so that when they are water stressed, they have this other option? I mean, so, creating uncompacted soil is one. Are there other opportunities here to help your plants manage to get through stressful periods of drought?
1: Okay, I'll come back to compaction in a second because this is by far the the one and most important mechanism in current agriculture. Okay. And it's totally underestimated what we do to the plant with the simple fact of compacting soil.
0: Um,
1: There is other mechanisms, for example, condensation of water on hairs or on plant surfaces, recondensation of water inside of the leaf. Um, Differences in particular thickness and, um, how would you put it? composition so that water gets lost easier or not. Then we have the difference between evaporative cooling through transpiration or radiative cooling, which changes completely once the plant has enough silica in it.
0: Wait, wait, hang on. So I understand (laughs) transpirative cooling. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is really cool. Uh, so, uh, transportive cooling, I get, I actually, I used to be a refrigerator technician, the simple... Uh, Perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, I'll look at it from a, from a mechanical perspective. When when water changes phase from a liquid to a gas, this dispersal in the increased surface area absorbs a ton of energy, mostly in the form of heat, and that's where you get this cooling effect. How in the yeah. world do, do plants experience radiative cooling then?
1: It's infrared emission and the amount and spectrum that is emitted changes if the plant is full of silica. Okay. You get near infrared emission, that's one thing. And this leads to leaf cooling of about four degrees in hot temperatures. That's an ambient temperature of 22 or something, it was just about one degree. But when it goes above 30, you get cooling of four to five degrees through that mechanism that you just radiate out this infrared better.
0: Okay, and so that level is maybe not uh, as big a deal for us, but, and correct me if I'm wrong here, there's a temperature at which many plants will simply stop photosynthesizing and that could be Correct. the difference between whether or not they're actually continuing to photosynthesize or go into dormancy.
1: Correct. I mean, it's not, not ob- obligatorily <laughs> what word, <laughs> dormancy. It's, I mean, of course, first they switch into photorespiration and then if it gets too hot, I mean, you just wreck the whole apparatus. Okay. denature enzymes, this is extremely stressful for the plant. Mm-hmm. Extremely. And so just the installation of this additional system, it's it's a big deal for the plant.
0: OK, so let's break down this additional system then. You said silica is a mineral here that plays a big role. What's going on that uh, that makes this happen? <laughs>
1: We are getting away from the water topic.
0: <laughs> oh man, oh man. All right. You gotta
1: help okay, keep me on Okay. We just I will just stick keep to asking that.
0: Some questions.
1: <laughs> we, we we stick to that in in a bit of a tweak context so that we don't get lost too much. Okay. Perfect. So the idea is if we have nutrient mining in the soil, parent material gets degraded and silica is available to the plant. There is plants that take it up more readily. There is plants that try to exclude it a bit. You know, all this, for example, rice or grasses, they take it up. They even accumulate it. They have transporters and apparently somehow accumulate it. And then we have um, species like um, beans, for example, that are not so keen on silica. They tend to take up less silica than it's in the soil solution. But basically, um, once we have it in the soil, it's taken up or um as silicic acid or as amorphous precipitate of this silicic acid apparently then it goes in and so there's two doors that we can imagine to go in there is one in solution the same model that we have been discussing before nutrient in solution pulled up with transpiration and then it just somehow gets stuck in the chute and encrusts the cell wall all these things and the other way it possibly can be taken up is little bits of amorphous silica that goes in through rhizophagy. So we have this mechanism along the roots. I refer to James White, otherwise we will sit here in an hour. Mm-hmm. Where the root, through a special uptake system, can internalize particles into the cell and take them up. That means The original intention is probably to take up microorganisms and humics. We know that. But apparently, all kinds of small particles are just grabbed with this mechanism and internalized. So we look at things that we like or that the plant likes, like nanoparticles of metals, of minerals, or maybe silica. And things we do not like, that's microplastic, for example. Mm -hmm. So this mechanism seems to be not very discriminative. And what we see is if you give silica nanoparticles to the plant through the root, I mean, engineered ones, they even end up inside of a chloroplast. So these really switch things in the plant and this is just be starting to emerge how this works and what works and in what conditions it works and when not but the thing is once it's in there it changes things and also the stability of the plant and it's not just a mechanical thing that really holds the plants different and upright and the angle towards the sun is such and such and all this but it really changes the way the whole mechanism functions.
0: Okay, I think I follow you so far. There's a couple of terms that I don't have a, a full grasp on. I keep hearing the term rhizophagy and, you know, what is this process that, uh, and, and how does it relate to what you just described there?
1: Okay. Um, rhizophagy happens at the root tip. At the apex, the, the very tip of the root, there is the, the tissue that makes the root grow where cell division happens when this root cruises or searches its way through the soil it encounters microbes obviously and these microbes once they are in association with a plant or the seedling has brought them along they will head towards the tip of the root with all kinds of motility that they have there is kind of a gate where the root takes up these little particles inside a little vesicle that's called. So the the delineation of the cell, you can imagine it like a little balloon. It's a membrane that's filled with water. And you can indent this balloon with a little particle. And then this indentation snaps off the surface to go inside the cell. And this is like a little prison And whatever the plant intends to do with the inside, it can do there and not be compromised by it. So what happens is that the plant strips microbes of their cell walls and uses the components which are nitrogen rich and stuff that adheres to their surface, which possibly are minerals, are cycled into the metabolism of the plant. And then the root grows, And from there, from the cell that has internalized the microbe, a root hair grows, ejects these microbes from that little vesicle that then fuses again with the cell membrane, and so they're thrown out of the root. They are provided with a bit of carbs, so what they start to do is fix nitrogen to get back their cell wall. Some microbes break during that process. It's a harsh process. They are going to be doused with reactive oxygen species and all this. This is really like harsh. And some of them don't withstand it and they just die. And they're eaten, basically. So this is prefabricated, ready-made building blocks for the plant. And it speeds up growth. Mm -hmm. And what is so perfect about it is the plant has a logistic problem the vasculature coming up from the leaf, transporting sugar into the root is not mature. So this ends a bit in front of the root tip. And this is where the most growth occurs. So being able to take in this material for growth in a spot where the synthesized material takes a time to be delivered to, it's perfect. So this is really um, boosting plant growth, if that works.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so with this, uh, with the, the rhizophagia that you just explained and the mechanisms uh, in, that you explained previously, this is all, I'm trying to come to a, a, a conclusion of what, what is the effect for the plants in the end, right? So this is all boosting. <laughs>
1: try all to figure that out yeah yeah yeah.
0: (laughs) so this is boosting growth especially down at the root level which i'm sure is reflected up at top and also the efficiency would you say of of water uptake and use or am i coming to the wrong conclusion here
1: okay this is something that we're just discussing a lot okay because there is a mechanism of osmotic stabilization of cells OK, look, if you have a cell and you have a certain volume inside of it, I mean, just imagine you have a balloon and then you start to internalize parts of the surface of the balloon. Obviously, what is going to happen? It's going to become stiffer because you, you lose material from the surface and you put material inside. So the whole thing stiffens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This means that this endocytosis, as this is called, is a mechanism for stabilization of the cell in osmotic stress. That means somehow all this balance of taking up microbes, throwing them out, um, the, the ratio of surface to volume of the cells, taking up water with the cells will change pressure in the root somehow okay. and what we know is these things they do not occur random but they occur in rhythms and there it gets really interesting because what you see is that nutrient uptake goes in oscillations surprise surprise and nutrient uptake of some nutrients is dependent on this process i'm talking of boron here and i'm talking of aluminum toxicity here in case it's too much, and probably even silica. So we see all that happening in oscillations. And then once the plant gets into moderate water stress, you see it transpire in oscillations. It's not interesting. As long as there is ample water and there is full sunlight, you don't see these oscillations. And once sunlight goes down, a bit, it's dimmed, and there is not ample water, you see that the plant is like, <gasps> you know, it's breathing. It's, mm. There comes transpiration and stops again. Once things go really bad and soil really dries out, you do not see these, this puffing anymore, it stops. Then the plant cannot stabilize itself anymore. So we see that the stem holds a water supply that it can kind of subsidize if the water budget gets tight and probably these processes in the root play a role and also regulatory processes you know that if you have been a fridge technician you have all these regulatory delays from sensing to um, correcting all things and so you get these oscillations in a system and This is not clear. I doubt that anybody really has investigated this this interplay of rhizophagy, endocytosis in root, um, evaporative demand in the shoot, in the leaf, and subsidy in the stem. But the problem is, if we go in there and we set wrong signals, like we put a nitrate, for example, which tells the plant to open the stomata and to transpire at full blast because it wants to take that up. That's the idea. I mean, nitrate is a, is a precious thing in the soil usually. So if it's round, you need to take it in. So we have the signal from the nitrate saying, okay, transpire, man, <laughs> go ahead. And then we have, for example, compacted soil with aluminum toxicity and the plant generates a single... No, stop transpiration by any means. Poison is coming in. Stop it. It's going to wreck all cytoskeleton. You know, we're going to die. Stop transpiration. What is going, the going poor plant to do then?
0: So it's getting these mixed signals from the and nitrate regulation. to start the flow and the aluminum yeah. to to stop the toxicity. What does it do? Does it take in the toxicity or does it shut down and, and lose the nitrate?
1: That's the thing. It's mm. a complete mess. And yeah. the thing is, as soon as you get a complete mess and signaling and restructuring and, re, you know, and the whole, uh, the thing is, as a sessile organism, the plant can't just pull out the roots and walk away from the spot. So what no. it has to do all the time is to remodel and to readjust metabolism and to change all its apparatus, you know, and to say, okay, maybe then we stay and make new lateral roots on the top of the surface. We don't go down and maybe more laterals and maybe root hairs, yes or no. And all these are decisions that cost and that will lead to yield loss and delayed growth in the end. This is the topic where I wanted to come back to, actually. how nice to aluminum toxicity so the the biggest and I think most unrecognized problem that we have is if we go in compaction and fertilization that force feeds the plant um, the plant needs to invest a lot of material into the root to To catch and hold back the aluminum in the root because it it cannot allow it to enter the shoot in high concentration. So, this is basically when that happens, unless you look at the hyperaccumulator, if you see large amounts of aluminum in the shoot, you know, everything went wrong before. Mm -hmm. So, when you see thickened root tips, and stunted root systems. Obviously, what has happened? The root growth has stopped because the conditions in the soil were not well. And then the capacity to take up water has been low, too low for the rest of the plant.
0: All right, real quick, let me see if I can wrap this around to. kind of practices in the field so what you're seeing a lot especially in row cropping operations i would imagine this is the most common is you've got compacted soil from tillage from machinery from uh lack of living roots in the soil for whatever number of reasons this could happen in pastures with cattle as well and you have applications of usually nitrogen or nitrate based uh, fertilizers which are force feeding the plant, like you were talking about, causing it to transpire water a lot faster or or more constantly than it would want to otherwise. And because of the conditions in the soil, there's these toxicities in the form of aluminum uh, that are confusing its metabolic process of, okay, we want to take up a whole bunch of things, but there's poison in here, so we don't want to. And this is inhibiting root growth and causing it to stagnate or even start to shut down in some cases if it does take up too much toxicity. Is that how is that somewhere on in the ballpark? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this confusion okay. and lack of or, or stopping of the growth of the roots, of course, is reflected in the top, inhibiting its ability to grow, to reproduce, to to obtain a yield. Yeah. Okay.
1: So very often you see numbers around a third of yield loss can be caused through compaction. I have always, I'm reluctant with these numbers because I see that, what what is the point that you compare to? I have seen incredible growth rates in happy plants in, in SRI plantings, you know, with large distances. And I'm sure if you compare this with a dense planted specimen in compacted soil, you get much worse numbers
0: hmm
1: but you know even there is a mechanism in plants that means that the plant exudes phosphoric acid into the root to bind to complex to precipitate aluminum so that, that it doesn't come in
0: uh-huh.
1: so you see in the shoot a lack of phosphate possibly And the plant doesn't grow because it needs this phosphate for energy metabolism to produce um, genetic material, you know, to divide and all this. So then you see in the shoot, a perceived phosphate deficiency. But in fact, what happens is that the phosphate goes down into the root to bind aluminum. Hmm.
0: As a defense mechanism, sure.
1: As a defense mechanism, as an exclusion mechanism. So aluminum doesn't enter.
0: Okay. Usually... so your mineral so is you present. put on
1: phosphate, used you know. <laughs> for
0: other things, so it can't be used for growth and development.
1: Yeah. So the usual reaction is, oh, I like phosphate. I need to put more on.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or you see the plants stunting and you don't understand why. Or you see it wilting and you don't understand why. And the other thing with nitrate, it's a bit dangerous. If you overapply nitrate, it will cause the root system to to go, they say, steep and cheap. That's the the way to to put it, to sum it up, because the plant doesn't, if it's in an oversupply and cannot be reduced and built in easily because growth is for some reason not going ahead, the root system again is reduced. And so we have these plants in, in, in the soil sitting there with a small root system that is confined to the top layer, and then we get a drought. Perfect. So of course we have to irrigate. <laughs> what else? But maybe not.
0: Okay, so I'm trying to think about what the implications for management changes could be for this, right? So you talked about if if your soil conditions are poor, if you've got compaction, if you have aluminum toxicity and probably an inability to irrigate or you know, depending on the field access. Larger spacing of plants could help out in the short term, or uh, would it be prudent to go straight to decompaction methods? What's gonna be effective here for overcoming this kind of problem?
1: If you use larger spacing of the plants and you do not change soil conditions, you just have a non-cover with dwarfs. Yeah. (laughs) And weeds are going to take advantage. Of the system so if you go into the direction of sri planting you must address compaction and soil biology SRI otherwise um, the system that is promoted by um, mr uphoff coming from rice rice intensification system where you plant really at very large distances and the thing is, what we usually forget is that we have not linear increase in plant mass over time, but that it's this like this chess game with the rice. I do not know if you know this story from to, to, to convey, you know, there was always this the emperor had a game um, or. There was someone who was allowed to have a wish towards the emperor and he said I just want this rice and every field of the chess game I would like to have the double amount.
0: Yes, I, so I of have of course heard we this have longer.
1: this this exponential increase and you would not know how much rice it was before the 64th field. Right. But we usually tend to forget that plant growth obeys the same thing because every shoot that we have can produce tillers or shoots. So we are not looking if the space is there at a linear increase, but we look at at other um, speeds of increase. That means that the more time the plant has an unbroken or unrestricted development towards the end is where the largest increase of biomass will occur. So... This is why planting at larger distances potentially can increase the yield many 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 fold, but of course if the growth is restricted for other parameters, it will not happen because the plant just sits there and can't move and can't produce so in that case we need you know the the, the system of to, to have large spaces only works when the roots can just really expand. Otherwise, if they can't expand, it's better to have the next neighbor there just to have cover. So of course, if you go for decompaction, um, that's a good idea if you can preserve this decompaction. So this is, for example, like um, Alec Podolinsky used to teach it: this three-step to have the soil once it's moist enough—that's important—to go in there and and to decompact it, and to immediately sow a multispecies mix that is inoculated with microbes that are friendly, and then you will see aggregation. There is people that are skilled enough to do that only with cover crops. I'm not specializing in compositions of cover crops. I cannot tell you under which conditions you need to use which species. And, you know, it's a science again. But obviously, I mean, there is means to address that issue. But the main thing is to keep it decompacted. (laughs) If you run over it in the next season and then compact it again, what was the point?
0: Yeah, and there's multiple ways of addressing compaction there's mechanical means there's chemical means and there's biological means and oftentimes this is context specific but the best long-term approach is some combination of all of those three and a long-term plan of keeping roots creating aggregates over the long term so that there's always something living in that soil would you agree
1: yeah And obviously, if the chemical parameters of the soils do not allow aggregation easily, that means if you, for example, have a wrecked calcium magnesium balance, Mm -hmm. and then you go in with um, mechanical means, it's hard to keep that structure open.
0: Right, it'll just condense
1: again. Yeah, exactly. An easy approach is to correct chemical parameters in the beginning so that they allow aggregation easily and if you need a quick change to go into there mechanically and once the soil is able to breathe you can install biology that will not die immediately after the first rainfall of waterlogging
0: survive yeah you know yeah
1: or else you can go in with These facultative anaerobic species that do not mind waterlogging. That's another strategy to say, okay, we are going to make these brews and just inoculate bacteria that still can cope with it. And eventually we soften deeper and deeper soil layers. There is many, many strategies to do that. But in the end, what's most important is you need to, to keep keep maintaining it. You know, right. So for example, if you just put in um, mustard and you kill soil life, you can cause something that you could cause call inner erosion, as Christoph tried did. So because then you, you compact the soil through non-diversity and, and death of soil life.
0: Wow. Yeah. Um, it just kind of comes back to similar patterns that every time we discover new information kind of reinforces the necessity of having diversity out in your fields for so much more than, you know, confusion of pests or resilience of the plants. There's all these other mechanisms at play underneath the soil surface as well that that would advocate for these these approaches. And OK, so I think we've got a broad level grasp of of these concepts of of the the reasons for decompaction uh you had mentioned before in the notes here that that plants can uptake water through more than just their roots and this kind of goes along with the efficacy of the the utility of foliar sprays right and that they can also absorb nutrients through their leaves but that they are able to reverse transpire through the stomata and can, th- this can be a mechanism to get through droughts or stresses uh, in the environment when water is less available in the soil. Is that, is that a good place to start into this?
1: <laughs> yes, okay, let's go there.
0: All right, let's go there.
1: <laughs> let's go there. So basically um, the, the narrative of this one-way transpiration, just denies that we could take up water through the leaf. So every gardener or the old experienced gardeners, they know that when, when the plant is completely collapsed, they just turn them upside down and, and dip them, you know, so because they just know it's a very fast way to get water back into the plant. Ob- obviously, you can't do that with a field, <laughs> but <coughs> sorry, um, the idea of having condensed moisture going back into the leaf overnight or even water vapor going back into the leaf and being taken up and subsidized the water budget these are things that you find in literature once you start to search for it but they are not prominent Mm -hmm. and the current the the big debate is how large the contribution is to the water budget and there you can see very elaborate calculations and currently the main or currently the the state of the art is basically when embolism has happened and the idea is that if you pull out of the leaf more transpiration than the root can deliver you get kind of a cavitation in the stem in the vasculator with a ultrasound plop. And that embolism then obviously um, impedes further the water transport. So once you have had the first, first embolism, the water would need to, to go into the next cell and go back on track to move up. And this slows water transport. So once you have had the first, the probability for more embolism to happen increases. And especially, this is basically
0: causing traffic jams in the vasculatory system of the plant. If you want
1: so, yes. And the problem, if you have very large trees, for example, or large plants, the, mm, the street is long until you get into belief and the probability raises to have an embolism there. And once you have had the first, more can happen. So if these embolisms close a vessel completely in the end, and it cannot be recovered in the end, what happens is that the growing tissue on the top will die. This is why you see often after these exceptional bad summers in trees, dead tips. Yeah. And if you start observing, this has increased much in the last years in the trees.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Apparently, this seems to be a mechanism that um, is limiting for plant size in arid um, environment. So plants that are used to dryness or drought have mechanisms to to de-embolize their vasculature. And this can be from cells sitting close to a vessel that kind of... um, Reinitiate them, or how can I put it? That
0: Re- repair the damage, maybe.
1: Yeah, re-inject. I just put it simple, and that way they yeah. re-inject the water into the wes- vessel, so the column is reunified and transport can resume. Got it. Now the interesting thing is that this repair often. Is easier fueled by water that comes in through the leaf and branches than from the root.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we know that maybe inadvertently, um, if you have, for example, um, how does how you say that? Trees not with not deciduous trees, but trees that have that are always green. Evergreens, you know?
0: yeah. Evergreens. Mm-hmm. And
1: you have in, in winter, the problem that they transpire more that they can suck from the ground. They often die. If you have, for example, snow falling, snow, the, the water can be taken up through the branches, through these lenticels, And this is used to repair the embolism. Oh,
0: wow. And then
1: the tree will survive. And this fog respiring, for example, is one mechanism how the redwoods maintain their water budget. So this is how they studied. They always said, hang on, how is it possible that these trees can, can be so high and how long would it take for the water from the root to travel up there and all these things. So this fog taken up or condensing moisture in the night, dew or recondensed water in the leaf, subsidize this water budget and a preferential substrate for repair of embolisms. And also interesting enough for photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, water is split in photosynthesis and if you really mark the water, um, if you radioactively trace the water taken up, you see that this is preferentially taken up in photosynthesis.
0: Wow. Okay. So we've got these two mechanisms and many different things that can either facilitate or inhibit the the, the, the absorption and then the circulation of water in a plant. We've got the, the root system, we've got the leaf system. And where I'm trying to make these connections now, again, always kind of thinking from a perspective of, of management, what are, first of all, the indicators that you can look for? Because very few people are going to dig up the plant and look at the root structure out in the field very frequently. What can you observe? They should. (laughs) That's true. They should do that more often. But let's say you're just, you're going through on on a general inspection and you're starting to see some changes. What are some of the indications above the soil that can give you some insights into how your plants are handling or not well handling water uptake? And from there, we can go into, you know, what what might be some steps to to solve them.
1: I think the first thing is, it's very educative to go out um, after dewfall. Very, very educative. Take a torch and go out there. And really early in the morning, usually. the very early morning it's here it's very often it's enough after 10 pm you know mm. something like that So you get enough to do yeah and this is something you know i often run out of schedule and i have to run into the greenhouse late at night to just <laughs> close something or fix something and when i did this i saw that some plants condense a lot of moisture for example and some don't and clover for example is a plant that condenses a lot of moisture And that was a surprise for me because I always came from that corner that I thought condensation on plant surfaces is just dependent on ambient temperature and relative humidity. Very wrong. The hairs that Clover has are specifically designed to condense moisture. And this moisture is guided towards the leaf surface. So it's really, it's, a mechanism that is made to absorb moisture. And this was when I started to think about um, generally when you go out there and you have a look, plant, hairy plants they full of drops. And then you see differences all of a sudden with the thickness of the cuticular. What I think that I see is that plants with a very thick cuticular you see more drops and obviously you can say, yeah, clear, you know, you just have a different wedding angel and you just see drop formation. And it's not only that you see more than them, how do you see the curve of the drop and the shape of the drop, but apparently they just really condense more. And this has to do with electrostatic charges accumulating on the plant and changes in condensation depending on electrostatic charges and wedding angels, uh, well, angles, not angels, <laughs> underneath. Hmm, maybe it's a wedding angel, who knows? So um, this is something where it gets really sophisticated. And if you start to look into engineering science, they, they really begin to exploit all these mechanisms. And in biology, it's not really catching, but it's at work. So a plant, what really was a lucky incidence was that I had plants that were exposed. Um, do I say that? Who has seen ever um, photo damage, photo damage after a foliar spray knows exactly that there are areas in the leaf that are more exposed to the sun and obviously then damaged than others. So if there is a lower scale, you see that there is areas of the leaf that do more photosynthesis than others. And what happened was that I had a tray of little cabbages where this had happened that it was uneven. There was the exposed Areas that had been photosynthesizing well, and there was the, the more shadowed one. And these were left outside and started to condense the dew. And it was really obvious that the areas that were doing photosynthesis well condensed dew and the other ones weren't. It was a funny sight. So if we put this together with the silica topic, that radiative cooling and that infrared radiation changes water structure, it's the rabbit hole to go down and we have no clue where we're going to end up. So if I go out into the field and I see that I have a good dew condensation, at least I can assume that overnight the plants will take up stuff. If I see they have a good waxy cuticular, this is something that I was surprised of because I was thinking like the thick waxy cuticula is like the rubber boot. And once it's thick, nothing goes through. This is not the case. The cuticula is an incredible smart material. And once it's imbibed, it's asymmetric and transport. That means if the moisture is kind of continuous and the cuticula is not collapsed, it will allow for uptake and preventing loss. Fantastic, this material. So to have a thick waxy cuticular is not contradictive for water uptake through the leaf. Probably on the opposite because it will change the condensing of water. But this is, this is speculative. This is something that I think I see in the field, but go out and observe yourself.
0: Okay, so hang on. How, how does this look then? Just give me an example. Uh, uh, the observation of the cuticula. Is this the the, the hairs on the leaf? Or where, where are you observing this waxy? Maybe I'm not even getting the, the cuticula right.
1: Cuticula is just the whole surface of the leaf. It's covered in a waxy layer.
0: Yeah, and so it's like waxy having layer, a nice sheen on it is, is what you're looking This for. may
1: be very thin, so uh-huh. there is no sheen. It just looks like you know, paper, <laughs> okay. or it can be really thick, really thick. Then it looks glossy.
0: Yeah.
1: Or it can be this appearance of brassicas where it looks, in, in German you say glaug. There is this um, cloudiness or like a plum where you have this, this, this layer that you can yeah. rub off. And this really is wax crystals on the top of the particular
0: Really? I always thought that it's that was wild yeasts.
1: No, 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 not necessarily. They okay. might be running around there, but it's this, this thing what you can rub off. It's uh, wax. Prusted.
0: Yeah, okay. Th- this clarifies it a lot because it looks different on different plants. They produce this on the surface mm-hmm. in a different way. And so you mm-hmm. kind of have to know what plant you're observing and how it demonstrates this, this waxy coating in order to know whether it's at a healthy stage or whether it's uh, not present or degraded exactly okay and
1: then it's yeah and the composition of the cuticula again it's you can you can lose a life of investigations there if you're a scientist
0: mm-hmm. um
1: what waxes are in there how there is a um, a very a polyester layer in there if you want to say so mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and you know all these things how they are layered, how thick they are, what composition you have, if you're on the top of the leaf, if you're on the lower surface on the leaf, it's all right. different. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay, but you can get better at this with your investigation. So you're going out at the time when you know you can observe some dew, and you're looking for what, droplet formation, as well as the the waxy uh, coating on, on a leaf surface as an indication for how your plant is doing hydraulically and, and it, whether or not it's able to absorb water through its leaves, or whether that mechanism is closed is that kind of what we're deducing from this i think so okay
1: i think so yeah
0: so what are some of the other indicators that you can look for to give you an insight into how your plants are handling water in a given moment
1: okay one one thing that relates very much to what we just said before do i plant hairy varieties or not I mean, you know, in the garden, for example, we tend to select against hairs. If you just look at cucurbits, sure. it's very nasty. They they, they are prickly. So yeah. you really tend to want to have shaved cucurbits you know, <laughs> or shaved mustards or whatever. You know, it's just nicer to handle than have these bristles in the fingers all the time. And much of the research has gone into producing smooth varieties, which is not a good idea because endophytes are... Also in the in the trichomes, in the bristles and hairs that are mm-hmm. on the chute,
0: mm-hmm.
1: fixing nitrogen there. So try to get hairy
0: varieties. Prickly varieties, yeah.
1: Prickly varieties, if it's not a nuisance. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, and of course, this double package together with the microbes. If you don't have the endophytes in there, it's just a waste of... Invest investment for a plant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So once the plant is wilting over lunch, this is not a post-mortem, but it's really then things have gone seriously wrong. I have grown up with this idea, oh, what doesn't kill us makes us harder. (laughs) So um, for me, seeing the pumpkins and everything wilt around lunchtime, yes, this is what they do. You know, it's not going to kill them, yes, but it's going to cost you yield. Yes. It's really, it's, it's a bill that you see there. Right. And the tighter the calculation, aluminum toxicity and this failure in water transport and the failure in cooling may be exactly what costs you your profit. Right. So right. it's better to watch out and to have plants that are water stable.
0: All right. So other than just adding more water through irrigation, what are some other things that you can at least trial to see if you can investigate further what the mechanisms in the plant that can be improved for water handling and efficiency before you just go to douse it with water?
1: Okay. So what you basically see is the happier a plant is. So the better the metabolism runs and the better the balance in the metabolism is, the less water you need to add to the system.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So nutrition obviously is a crutch that you can tweak or not, you know, one cannot tweak a crutch. So with nutrition, (laughs) you can try to tweak the system, so it performs better and more smooth. Um, Foliar feeding is kind of a sword with two edges there. Because, obviously, if the root doesn't perform well, for whatever reason, you can say, okay, I'm going to supply it through the shoot. And there's two things to keep in mind, or probably a 1000 more, but two prominent ones. And one is, we have this idea that we need to optimize photosynthesis. But the problem is, if the root has stopped growth, one of the main sinks is gone. And this is the moment where the plant, if you try to push it into more photosynthesis, gets a serious problem.
0: Uh It's being forced
1: yes because you already have the problem that sugar is accumulating and then what so if the foliar is intelligently put together so the plant can break whatever deficiency it had and resume growth super if the plant had hit the growth it can assume in, in this condition, and you go in with a foliar to boost growth, bad move, because the only thing you have then is that the plant needs to even more counter-regulate photosynthesis and even more shut it down. And the second thing is, with foliar feeding, is that you make deposits on the cuticular that possibly degrade the cuticular. Mm which can be a good thing, or it can be a bad thing. Fungi, for example, they like to feed on cuticular material. And if they do it and the cuticular is degraded, then they hit the wall of the first cell layer and they start to feed on the wall. And then the plant says, hey, hang on, an intruder is there and the defense mechanisms go off. So apparently a thinner cuticular can be an advantage in earlier pathogen recognition, maybe,
0: but maybe not. As the immune system, much like our white blood cells, learn to build antibodies and recognize intruders. Exactly. Brilliant.
1: So this is things where we are looking at isolated um, results from science. And I would be very reluctant to get them out in the field.
0: Mm -hmm. Too early.
1: Because I I just see that a plant that's really well balanced, that has good cuticular, you won't see fungal pathogens there. Okay. And we do not know what interplay is there in the philosphere between protective fungi and yeast and bacteria with the pathogens and whatsoever and material that's transported onto the, you know, it's endless. But it is this this cuticula when it's degraded by particles it can be dangerous because obviously then the defensive barrier against water loss is gone. And what happens is that you can get a continuous water film initiated through these particles from the leaf inside out to the atmosphere. And then you get strongly increased transpiration from a leaf and the plant cannot regulate that anymore. Mm. And this is why aerosols, industrial aerosols are a big problem to plants. And if you add to the problem with frequent foliars, you can make things a lot worse. So a foliar is not just oh yes we just do it. It's something you really could should consider carefully, and also how concentrated it is. If you make it too strong, and it is a drought situation, you can do a lot of damage.
0: Okay, and I really and want also to go the into pH like pH is not good, right? Well, it really makes me want to go deeper into how to design an appropriate foliar spray based on the observations that you can make from a plant or through soil samples or through sap analysis or whatever. But that's a whole nother topic and we're already kind of getting to the end of our time today. But um, we've already talked about this before that we could turn this into a series and go deeper into each of the different topics that we introduced today. So let's say to wrap things up, today and then and then leave things open for another episode, what are some of the, let's say, indicators that people should constantly be looking for to understand what they can do or how they can better manage their crops with this increased risk of high temperatures and drought that we're starting to experience? What should they be paying attention to regularly?
1: I think the first most important indicator that i perceive is the color of the plant okay and this drastically changes with metabolic activity so a plant that's really well off will look kind of glowing it's It looks like it's reflecting light from the inside out. If you see that, you're safe. Mm -hmm. And when you see deviations from the morning throughout the day that you think it's look like bluish or more yellowish, and you see that the leaf, I mean, it doesn't curl, but you see that the surfaces are not, you know, it just doesn't look saturated somehow. Mm. Then you know that water stress had set in and you also can smell it. A plant that grows happily, if you go into a greenhouse, this is how you can learn this smell. A plant that grows happily just from its pectin, the changes in the pectin, it will breathe out methanol. And this is something, this is kind of fruity, you know, you go into a greenhouse and you have this this fruity, healthy green smell. I can't put it in another
0: word. Mm, Almost floral.
1: Then you know things are going well. And as soon as, as you can smell the change immediately and you know what's cooking. Basically what I think we should look routinely underground. What do the root systems do? And the first indicator that something's going wrong is that growth is slowing, obviously. Mm. It is a healthy plant grows a lot overnight. And if you see that happening, development and growth overnight, everything is okay. And once you see that the machinery is stagnating, this is the moment to react and not when damage like pest and illness has set in because then it's hard to remediate it. And also the loss already has happened because the plant has probably 50 times remodeled during that time. Had to stiffen the cell walls, had to change conductivity and to keep up conductance, all these things, you know. It's endless. What they have to to take care of all the time. And you know that from yourself. The more frequently you have to change internal structures, the harder it is to deliver external output, sorry. Mm -hmm. So yield is lost.
0: Yeah, this is amazing because it really reinforces what I've been taught in that, you know, lab tests and, you know, specific devices can tell us some very detailed things about what's going on between our plants and in our soil, but that some of the most advanced and Uh, delicate instruments are the ones that are attached to our body, our eyes, our nose, our ears in a lot of cases, our tactile sense, and that before we jump to these lab tests and, and other techniques, we should try and calibrate and refine the testing mechanisms that we have in our own physiology. And this is something that you've really helped me to develop in giving me an idea of what to look for ways to observe the frequency and the indicators that all of us can kind of learn to, to understand that can give us insights into how our management is working or not working so that we can make these interventions or change course, like you said, before damage sets in, before they become susceptible to pests and other problems when there's an opportunity to kind of change the trajectory.
1: Look, one thing I, I would like to add here I mean, currently there is um, modern monitoring being developed. Very little devices that are printed on the leaf can measure transpiration. Wow! And this apparently is able to connect to an app. (laughs) And so you could be pre-warned of um, water stress before it becomes obvious. But from my experience, once we get rid of the idea that a plant is just a stiff fixed angle thing that stands around there in the world and we start to look at how a plant is able to to adopt different postures towards the sunlight you know if it's feeding or if it's not feeding and the best plant to practice this perception is bees Mm. Beans are very sensitive to, to the irradiation that hits the leaves. Apparently, they cannot regulate very well internally. So what they do is they really move their leaflets all the time. They move their whole leaf better than sunflowers. You can really learn a lot just observing beans. And when you see that a plant goes into optimal angle to the soil with all leaves and taking them into an overall arrangement that they don't shade each other, you know that the plant in this moment wants to take in the most radiation possible and produce carbs. And that means that the sinks are functional. Mm -hmm. Because once the sinks are not functional anymore, like root growth has stopped and mycorrhizae is not there, so there is no emergency partner that can function as a sink when root growth has stopped. That is the moment when the plant doesn't want to take in more radiation to produce more carbs. So then you see the bean take out the leaflet of the sun. really they, they just it's like a solar panel that is moved out of radiation. There is other plants where these signals are more hidden and where it's harder to observe them and I also think that some hybrids are not not doing that on the degree that heirloom does it. But basically all plants have this this capacity to do it. And you just need to refine your observation, how they stand there, how they're feeding, if they're drooping their ears or not. So if there is an expanded non-shading posture with even distribution around the axis, you know things are running well.
0: Oh, this is fascinating, really cool. And this is something that you just have to be paying attention regularly to be able to identify and I would imagine that there are lots of different indicators and behaviors in other plants, you know, depending on what it is you're trying to grow or get a yield from, that with combination of of demonstrations from multiple plants, you can really start to get insights into what is happening in the interior mechanisms of these life forms and use that to refine your management processes, right?
1: One thing that's really worth to observe is how is the weed performing compared to my crop?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: So I only got aware that I had problems here related to aluminum. When I saw weeds turn up, or when I identified some of the weeds that I had here, um, that they were actually indicating aluminum toxicity. And the problem is that aluminum is, as we have discussed before, held back in the root. So you won't even see it turn up in the plant sap until it's too late. And when you see, for example, the weeds being <laughs> very happy <laughs> and showing this wonderful gestures and growth and everything and your crop is not this is the point where you know, okay, I have made a mistake in in compared to my defined goal. Right. You know, and the goal was the crop and not the weeds.
0: Right, right. And but so how of do you course find out about this. How do you find out about this without an encyclopedic knowledge of the different weeds that are coming up and what they indicate in the soil? Because this is something that's been coming up a lot in the chats with the climate farmers group, is Many people recognize that the weeds are telling you a lot, but we're struggling to find resources aside from a couple of decent books in French that, yeah, yeah you know the ones I'm talking about, that that give you a spectrum of what weeds to look for, what they can tell you about your soil and some conclusions that you can come to about mineral presence or, you know, the biology that's happening underground. Do you have... Sources or places to go to learn more about this?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Your own observation. Look, the novelty um, from these good books in French, <laughs> we are speaking of Gerard Dusserf here. Yeah. And I really want to honor the brainwave that he had to say, once I see weeds that love wet places migrate. Into a place that actually isn't wet. It is the compaction that mimics the toxicity of waterlogging. Put in my words now.
0: Right, we're talking about so like stocks and such in pastures.
1: As as soon as I see where I'm in my pasture or when wherever I'm I'm cropping, where I see weeds migrating in there, that are from moist spots. I know that I have problems with aeration Mm -hmm. and with aluminum toxicity. Mm -hmm. And this of course is specific for the country you're in, for the climate you're in and all this. So, Gerard de will never be able to make a comprehensive spectrum for the whole world. But this is the idea behind. And if you just look at the weeds that you have, where they would grow in nature then you know what you have created in your soil
0: yeah yeah brilliant and ah. this is
1: this is tedious <laughs> no doubt about it
0: yeah yeah that's it's a, it's a long learning journey but one of the things that i love is that resources like this uh, this podcast um the conversations we're having in the groups, the other content that's being created around this kind of can help to accelerate the learning process by giving insights into the observations that you can do yourself in order to find out what's relevant to what you're observing on the fields and what conclusions you can derive from that. And well, look, so I think that's a really good place to wrap it up for today. And we'll go deeper into observations in plants and in soil that can give you insights into management practices. And then of course, what you can do with that and some trials or some tests that you can perform to see if you can improve the the health and the function and the growth of your crops. Uh, So Harriet, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was super fun. I know a few people who can make the density of plant physiology so understandable as you do. and, And I really appreciate your time. All right, thanks once again to Harriet. I'll be posting the links to her online courses and her contact information in the show notes for this episode, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from all of the last six seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. We've got the Discord server, which is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few other guests from this show. Now, our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see all of the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as our own properties. And I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. And if you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. Now we truly believe that no matter your knowledge, experience, abilities, resources or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you find your path. So until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.